another month, um, another episode in the ongoing culture wars in British society. It's not quite as fierce as in some other parts of the world that we've already prayed about, but it's very real. Richard Dawkins Foundation unveils the Ipsos, uh, an Ipsos Mori poll, which demonstrates that three quarters of those who label themselves as Christians don't think that uh, Christianity should influence politics. Mark Thompson, the Director General of the BBC, accepts that Christianity gets a tougher treatment in the BBC than other faiths. Lynn Featherstone, the Equalities Minister, insists that uh, the church doesn't own marriage, and on it goes. And uh, all of that would be an interesting sideshow, to be honest, in the app for the average Christian, if it weren't for the fact that, that, frankly, we ourselves rub shoulders with people who share many of those beliefs passionately in the in the workplace, even amongst our our, our friends. Judy and I have uh, uh, numbers of friends who who. Um, uh, are passionate supporters of those who actively set out to confront Christianity. And it's uncomfortable, isn't it? We live in an age when suspicious and op- suspicion and opposition seems to rise uh, every year. And it's not surprising in that context that numbers of campaigning Christian organisations have sprung up seeking to defend Christianity. One announces on its website that one of its chief purposes is defending the historic freedoms that we have enjoyed in this nation for so long. But wait a minute. I I have some, some questions to ask. Is it right to defend the historic freedoms that we have enjoyed? And anyway, have we enjoyed those historic freedoms that people talk about? Now, it seems to me, of course, that whilst it may be true that Christianity of one sort or another has enjoyed historic uh, freedoms... Biblical Christianity, people who take the Bible seriously and follow Christ, have always been treated, one way or another, with a significant amount of suspicion, if not opposition. Actually, a a, a simple glance at the history of Britain demonstrates that. Um, Let me give you a whistle-stop tour through the last 700 years of Britain, in the 14th century. You had John Wycliffe, at one time master of Balliol College, uh, uh, just down the road here, translated the New Testament into English. He was so vehemently hated that though he died a peaceful death, they dug his remains up and burned them and scattered them uh, uh, in a river. In the 15th century, his followers were called the the Lollards, which was a um, uh, a term of um, uh, derision, or Bible men. And they were excluded from society. In the 16th century, at the Reformation, finally the Bible itself became generally available to people and it sparked a massive culture war. 
numerous executions for heresy in the 17th century. That spilled over into a civil war in which the Bible-believing parliamentarians rose up against the autocratic Charles I. The results of that, frankly, were not good. And so by the 18th century, British people had resolved not to go to war on such issues. But the suspicion and hostility hadn't decreased. Take people like John Wesley, for instance, who was excluded from preaching in churches, reviled as uh, they used to call him an enthusiast. Um, and, 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 and they forced him to start a new church movement, which was, became the Methodists. In the 19th century, the hostility to Christianity had not, in fact, particularly uh, subsided. There were battles over things like uh, uh, slavery that we all know about with William Wilberforce. There was, there was lots in, in, uh, in English literature in the 19th century designed to poke fun at Bible-believing Christians. For instance, Anthony Trollope created the saintly Miss Thorne, whose virtues were too numerous to describe and not sufficiently interesting to deserve description. <laughs> or uh, he also cr- created the oily, obsequious, scheming evangelical chaplain, Obadiah Slope. There was a massive culture war going on in the 19th century. The 20th century, by those standards, was a relatively quiet period, I think. But not because our culture had, had, had really become at peace with biblical Christianity at all. It was for another reason, uh, actually. I recently read an article by an elderly academic who remembered the 1950s and 60s. And he said that in the senior common rooms and academic conferences of the universities, there was a, a quiet, calm confidence that it was just a matter of time until biblical Christianity, Christianity in general, died out. But this man said, having been in, the, in that world for uh, uh, the next 40 years, he said, by the 1990s and especially the, year, the, the 2000s, The mood had changed in those circles to anxiety and even anger. Because biblical Christianity wasn't dying out. So the 21st century campaigns uh, with the so-called new atheists or all the uh, political um, turmoil that is going on one way or another at the moment. We mentioned some of it uh, this morning is nothing new. There's nothing that we shouldn't expect. Anyone who wants to follow Jesus must accept that in society at large they will be treated with suspicion, sometimes hostility, sometimes worse. The lesson of the last 700 years, and it's a lesson that Jesus wanted to teach his disciples. Remember, in Matthew 10, uh, Jesus is, is sending his disciples out on a sort of dry run of uh, an evangelistic mission. He sends them only to the lost sheep of Israel. He sends them just for a, for a brief time to get them used to what it's like. 
But the basic principles, we said, of what these disciples are to learn in that dry run are what disciples in every age are going to have to learn. And two weeks ago, when I, when I, um, I started um, talking about Matthew chapter 10, I, I, um, I tried, perhaps tried too hard to persuade you that it's, a, that it's a, um, a not quite as intimidating as it might seem. It is fundamentally a picture of ordinary people reaching out in the name of Christ with word and deed, living simple lives and acting wisely. Well, whether I was right or not to try to paint it in that um, uh, slightly more mundane way, I frankly cannot be faithful to Jesus and withdraw the sting of what he says in this section. Jesus does not pull his punches about what it means to follow him and to serve him in the wider world. And we must take that seriously. And if you're not yet a a Christian here this morning, then these words of Jesus are really important for you. You won't be hated by absolutely everybody, because the Bible makes it plain that, that, that Christians earn respect and people do often applaud the good lives of Christians. But you will be in a category that she's treated with some suspicion in this world. And if you're a Christian here, then we really have got to face up to that. Look at what Jesus says. Jesus says, effectively... Expect opposition everywhere. Expect opposition, first of all, in verse 17, from religious authorities. Expect religious opposition. Verse 17, be on your guard, you will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogue. Local councils were Sanhedrins, they were religious courts. Synagogues were, of course, places of worship. But those places of worship, says Jesus, will be converted to to auditoriums to watch a flogging. We uh, we underestimate how much, uh, to our peril, how much opposition actually comes from religious people. A friend of mine was uh, um, in, a, in, a, in an ecclesiastical meeting where he was talking about his church's hopes of, of planting a new church in a new locality. And after some umming and uh, ahhing amongst the clergy, one of, one of the clergy said, look, we've just got to come clean about this. He said, you're we hate your evangelical Christianity. That's why you don't want us. Near, why we don't want you near us. My friend said it was, in many ways, very commendable, and he's on uh, reasonable terms with that man. The man was honest. Expect. Religious opposition. Expect, says uh, Jesus, political opposition. 
verse 18, On my account you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. Jesus here is, is anticipating more than just that immediate mission that they are having to, to Israel. Um, he's anticipating the church's ongoing, wider mission to, to the world, as he puts it, to the Gentiles. And he says, when you get out there, there will be trouble. In every age, there will be political forces which want to stir up trouble for Christians. There is nothing new under the sun. Expect political opposition, said Jesus 2,000 years ago. Expect as well, perhaps most poignantly, family opposition. Brother will betray brother to death, the father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. You know, I have sat with a young Jewish uh, woman who was very newly converted to, to following Christ. And... Um, she sat with me and she told me that she was on the way to tell her parents, her orthodox Jewish parents, about her faith. And she said, the chances are that I will be thrown out of the house, that they will have a ritual funeral for me, because it's as if I've died, and they'll refuse to see me ever again. But she was determined to follow Christ. Expect family opposition. I've witnessed as well parents, got godly parents, good parents, they're not perfect with their, with, their, with their weaknesses and their inadequacies, but, but basically good Christian parents being vehemently denigrated by their kids who walk away from their faith. Jesus says, even in families, don't think that following me will automatically bring peace. Sometimes it brings the most painful opposition. And he sums it up by saying, expect opposition from all sides. You see that in the, where is it, verse 22. You will be hated by everyone because of me. He hasn't left much room for doubt, has he? What followers of Jesus have been experiencing for the last 2,000 years, Jesus said they should anticipate. But this is the important thing that I want you to notice. In some ways, all of those warnings are just the backdrop, the important thing that I want you to see um, this morning is what he says about how we should conduct ourselves in that environment. The first thing he says is massively important. He says, in that context, I expect you to be defenceless like sheep. 
Do you see that in verse 16? I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Imagine that picture. There's a, there's a, there's a farmer here and um, he sees that there are wolves out there on the hillside. A pack of wolves ranging around, hungry. What does he do? Well, what he does in the Middle East is he gets his best dogs. His big, strong, determined, sharp-toothed dogs. And he sends them out to send that pack of wolves running and fleeing. That's what a good shepherd does. It's not what Jesus does. He sends out the sheep. Won't they be savaged and killed? Jesus' answer is yes. Quite possibly. But they'll only be following their master who was led like a lamb to the slaughter. Don't they need a shepherd? Well, yes. They will have a shepherd. The God of Abraham. The God of David who said, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and staff protect me. But out there they are without the dogs. Defenceless. Now, I I deeply understand the sentiment, um, and I share it myself in many ways, amongst Christians, uh, campaigning Christians, that we we want to defend ourselves. We, We want to stand up for our rights, and there is a place to do that. But the danger is, you see, we're more of a sheepdog than sheep. The uh, great early church father, Tertullian, he pointed out that the genius and power of Christianity was its willingness to bless when it is cursed and reviled, to love our enemies when our enemies hate us and to pray for them, to follow Christ whatever the cost but never follow him bearing a sword. To go out as sheep amongst wolves. If we're honest, the average person in Britain at the moment does not remotely have that image of Christianity. In the early um, uh, church, if you read the church fathers, they, they again and again appealed to the fact that it was transparently obvious that that's how Christians lived. Defenceless, but holding their integrity. But uh, too often, it seems to me, we have been frankly wolf-like ourselves. You know, when I, when I hear the voices of, of, of gay activists and, uh, and, and, and speak to um, uh, people in that, uh, uh, in that grouping, 
I realise again and again that an awful lot of their vehemence against Christianity stems actually from the perception that they feel like the sheep and they feel like they've been savaged by Christians. Something has gone badly wrong. Judy and I watched a film this week um, entitled Of Gods and Men. It's uh, loosely based on a, on a true story of monks in Algeria who found themselves in the middle of the rising violence of Algeria in the uh, 1990s and they deliberated as it was obviously becoming extremely dangerous for them. Should they flee? Should they, should they take the protection that the government offered them? Or should they decide to stay without defence and simply continue serving sacrificially the local community that they were in and let God do what he wanted with them? They chose the latter. And they died. Did they make a mistake? Or actually, did that, that, those actions immeasurably harm, enhance the reputation of Christ in that area? I found myself imagining their story as a, as a sort of parable of our situation. Should we flee into a safe ghetto? Should we seek to defend ourselves with the power of law in the corridors of power? Or should we simply serve the world vulnerably as sheep amongst wolves? Jesus is clear, isn't he? Not, of course, that we are to be completely foolish, unthinking. Far from it. No, he nuances that. Having said that we are to be sheep, not to take up power, not to seek to defend ourselves or go to battle. Um, uh, having said that, he uses a, a series of pairs of, um, of descriptions of what we are to be like to try to capture something of the, of the, of the, of the subtlety and the ambiguity and the real life situation um, decisions that we will have to make. First of all, he says, as defenceless sheep, we should be both shrewd and innocent Verse 16 again. Therefore be as shrewd as snakes, as innocent as doves. It's a, it's a dangerous metaphor, that shrewd as snakes. Yeah, and the, 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 the shrewd serpent in the Garden of Eden stood for the devil himself. There is something morally dangerous about being shrewd in this world. When does shrewdness tip over into manipulation? When does it tip over into deceit and lying? But Jesus uses a, a dangerous simile. No, you've got to think carefully and be wise. When do you talk about your faith and when do you judiciously stay silent? How, how do you present that issue in a way that, in a way that people um, will understand and sympathise with it? Be, be careful, shrewd thinkers, says Jesus, but all the time be as innocent, as, as pure, as, as, as complete 
um, and straightforward as a dove. Never let your integrity be compromised. Careful thinking and transparent innocence. Somehow they go together and must be blended in a Christian disciple living in this world. Be as well, he says, uh, alert and trusting. Alert, verse 17, first of all. Be on your guard, he says. You will be flogged, uh, handed over to the local councils and, uh, uh, and flogged and so on. Be mentally alert. Keep your wits about you. Look out for the opportunity to say something pithy in that situation. Be ready for, to, to give an answer for the, for the hope that you have. Keep your mind in gear as you deal in this world and try to present Christ clearly. But alongside being alert, be mentally completely at rest and trusting. Verse 19. When they arrest you, don't worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking for you. We simply can't be prepared for every possibility. The most important thing, says Jesus, is to be at rest, trusting God, being close to God, so that the Spirit of our Heavenly Father can speak through us in situation after situations. Be alert, and trusting. I remember a period in my life which was, which was a very significant step forward in my relationship with God. And it was, it was characterised by a deep sense of, of, of pleasure in him. I wish I could say that was consistently always my life. Uh, it hasn't been. Um, there, my faith has never um, um, felt threatened particularly, but sometimes I felt particularly close to God and other times not so. This was a, this was a particularly close period of, 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 of time with God and I found it absolutely amazing that conversation after conversation after conversation simply turned to matters of real importance about the Christian faith. Somehow, I didn't, I didn't have to plan it, I didn't have to do it. Somehow, simply the act of being close to God, being, as the New Testament puts it, filled with the Spirit, enabled God to, uh, uh, to use me. Don't worry about what you'll say. Trust in God and he'll speak through you. Be alert and trusting. And then another... Um, uh, another contrast that he uses in verses 22 and 23. Stand and flee. Standing is in verse 22. Do you see that? You will be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. This, this in the Bible is our simple calling to stand, not to move from the certainties of our faith, not to be tempted to compromise on our morality, not even to withdraw from the public realm into some uh, private and safe place, but simply to stand in the public and say, this is my faith in Jesus Christ. I cannot change it because it is the truth. This is how I will live. Stand firm, says Jesus. 
But also, he says, be ready to flee. When you're persecuted, verse 23, in one place flee to another. Truly I tell you, you will not finish going through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. It's not entirely clear what Jesus means by not finish going through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Elsewhere, whenever there's a description in the New Testament of the Son of Man coming, it seems to be the the second and final coming of Jesus at the end of history to judge the whole world. So if that's what um, uh, Jesus is talking about here, he, he seems to be meaning you will not finish your witness to Israel, to the Jews, before Jesus comes. It'll be an ongoing missionary endeavour that will continue right up to the end of time. But the most important thing he says um, is... What he, says, uh, what he says about fleeing here. In the process of that ongoing endeavour to reach the world, you need, as well as standing, sometimes to make strategic retreats. I mean, those monks in that film in, in Algeria, deliberating about whether they should stay or go. They could have left. They wouldn't be betraying Christ necessarily. It was a judgment call to stand or to flee. And that's a judgment call we make in our lives again and again. Shall I stand up and challenge what's just been said in the office? Or is this a moment to make a strategic retreat and to stay quiet? Should I, um, um, uh, should I move on from a particular job because it's just too difficult to be a Christian in that situation? Sometimes that's appropriate. Or is my calling to stand up for my faith here, even though it's really hard? It's a judgment call. You see, in everything, Jesus is, Jesus is balancing these things. He says you've got to be shrewd and innocent. You've got to be alert and mentally at peace, trusting that God will enable you to speak. You've got to be standing and ready to flee. There is, there is a balance, there is a, a, a judiciousness required in believers as we live in this hostile world. But the one thing he doesn't qualify is the defenceless of sheep. That's how you stand. You are not both a sheep and a wolf. You're a sheep. And then the other thing he doesn't qualify is his summary statement at the end that brings it all together. The student is not above the teacher, nor a servant above his master. It's enough for students to be like their teachers and servants like their masters. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebul, how much more than members of his household? Students don't teach their teachers, says Jesus. It's the other way round. Servants don't divorce themselves from their masters. They just live in the master's household and the fate of the master in part determines their fate. And so if we follow Jesus as our teacher and our master, we simply cannot think we can live life in this world better than him. We cannot think 
we can somehow divorce our fate from his fate. And as he says, he was called Beelzebul, the devil himself. His followers cannot expect to be called anything else. Crucially, he says, we should find contentment in that. Did you see verse 25? It is enough for students to be like their teachers and servants like their masters. It is enough. When I get reviled and um, told that I'm part of a nasty schismatic sect, it's enough to think, well, I'm here with Jesus. When you meet opposition or misunderstanding or venom, it's enough. Just to say, I can't place myself anywhere else in society and follow Jesus. It's not possible. Now, for those here who are not yet Christians, I realise that raises the stakes enormously, doesn't it? It's not just shall I join this club? It's not just, well, I'll, I'll, I'll set out to follow Jesus, but, you know, I'll, I'll negotiate a path for myself that, that really is quite comfortable in this world. Jesus has systematically, in this passage, uh, knocked away every pretension we have like that. And he says, no, to follow me is to be a person who is treated with real suspicion in this world. You cannot follow me unless you are prepared to do that. Jesus is very, very straight with us and I want to be very, very straight with you. Don't follow Jesus unless you are prepared for that. If you want to think more, this evening, Dano um, uh, from Christians in Sport, Graham Daniels, is coming to talk, to explain us the Bible. And uh, he has a particular gift in making it clear. Come along this evening. But this morning, hear Jesus. You will be like a sheep amongst wolves if you choose to follow me. And for us here who are Christians, we must take this seriously. We must not conduct ourselves as if we were trying to carve out some, some comfortable, privileged place where we can live totally at peace with our society. It is not an option for followers of Jesus. Not that we're fools, not that we go, go, and, go and make trouble for ourselves unnecessarily. That's, that's not what is being talked about here. We have to be shrewd 
and innocent. We have to be judicious about when we stand and when we flee. But in the end, Jesus was called Beelzebul. His followers can't do anything else. There was a man um, who was converted as a very young man around very shortly after Christ's death and resurrection called Polycarp. He uh, lived to an old man in rising levels of hostility in the Roman Empire and um, when he was very old in the second century there was an outbreak of persecution. The key thing that the Romans insisted was that Christians should take an oath of absolute allegiance to the Roman Emperor. And no Christian could do that because their allegiance was with Christ. They set out to find Polycarp and he fled. He was no coward, but he judiciously decided it was time to flee. And he went and he was hidden by Christian disciples. A young Christian was uh, tortured and betrayed Polycarp. The Roman soldiers came and found him and dragged him into the arena. And the governor said this to him, Take the oath and I'll let you go. Revile Christ. Polycarp said, 86 years I've served him. And he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my saviour? So they killed him. But the church grew and grew and grew and grew. Our nation will not hear Christ because of silver-tongued evangelists with extraordinary gifts who just have people eating out of their hands. Our nation will hear of Christ because there are ordinary disciples who are prepared to live like Polycarp. It's vanishingly unlikely you will pay the same price as him. But doesn't it make it all the more urgent that we learn to live like him?